Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on pediatrics. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Schlegel. I'm um, a physician at Nationwide Children's and I'm a neonatologist by training and then I've done a little bit of additional um, education in palliative medicine. So I direct our perinatal palliative care program, um, which is housed at Nationwide but is a uh, community-wide um, community uh, effort. So today I'm going to talk about perinatal palliative care in um, fairly broad terms. I'm not going to get too specific about our program here, um, but I want you to, um, to feel like you've had some exposure to caring for families who are expecting babies with life-limiting diagnoses. So objectives for today, um, we want to recognize the characteristics of patients who can benefit from a perinatal palliative care consult. Um, by the end of today's talk, you should be able to explain the structure of a multidisciplinary perinatal palliative care team. Um, I'd like you to be able to describe the application of the palliative care domains um, to care during the perinatal period. And then finally, you should be able to summarize in general terms the role of a birth plan as a perinatal advanced care planning tool. So to start with, making a, a case for perinatal palliative care. Um, in the United States, our infant mortality rate, which is deaths under one year of age, is about 5.9 per 1,000. It varies a little bit from year to year, um, but typically that's about 23,000 deaths annually that occur during the first year of life. Um, and then to put that into perspective, when it comes to newborn death, um, death during the neonatal period is actually about two-thirds of that, um, about two-thirds of that number, so 4.04 deaths per 100,000 live births um, annually. Most of those deaths can be summarized in this pie chart. So complications of prematurity account for about 26%. You can see the complications of pregnancy, SIDS, accidents um, account for about another third. And then congenital abnormalities um, or chromosomal anomalies, those kind of broad, um, broad overarching genetic syndromes uh, or category of genetic syndromes is um, 29%. Um, and this is that group of babies that typically have something that um, or may have something that is identified during the perinatal period. Um, so we know that uh, technology and medical advancements and uh, where we're at now in 2019 um, are fairly significant when it comes to identifying differences in babies before they're born. Um, this can mean that we recognize subtle findings or sometimes it means that we um, are able to recognize a serious difference in how a fetus is developing. And in many cases, we actually are able to identify a genetic difference or a specific chromosomal anomaly when it does exist. Um, common points in time where life-limiting fetal diagnoses are recognized, um, just to kind of look at it from a trimester standpoint. Um, during the first trimester, women go through um, what is classically considered to be first trimester screening, so that's usually some form of blood work and, um, and an ultrasound that occurs somewhere around 10 to 12 weeks. Um, during that testing, we can pick up abnormalities like anencephaly, where, um, where the skull and brain are significantly abnormal. We can also pick up um, higher risk for aneuploidies. So the, the newer advances in cell-free fetal DNA allows us to pick up 
um, aneuploidies around 10 to 12 weeks of gestation. <laughs> the previous um, maternal serum testing that was done around 10 to 12 weeks or um, 10 to 14 weeks would also identify increased risk for trisomy 13, trisomy 18, trisomy 21. Um, women who choose to do further testing in the, in the setting of a higher risk um, identification during the first trimester um, can undergo amniocentesis, um, which offers the opportunity to do more specific genetic testing um, on cells coming from the placenta and baby. Um, the anatomy scan typically occurs around 18 to 20 weeks, um, and that is a point in time where women may, um, may be told that their baby has some differences in how they are developing. Um, so certainly we can see at that point in time anomalies that are suggestive of genetic syndromes or constellations that suggest that a baby may not be able to survive outside of the womb. Certainly not all women opt for these, these forms of testing, and not all women um, choose to pursue further testing when abnormalities are identified. Um, however, when abnormalities are identified, women are followed through closely through that um, third trimester with serial fetal assessments. They can certainly undergo higher level targeted testing with um, amniocentesis at any point during the, the, the latter half of the pregnancy, or fetal MRI, fetal echocardiography. We really can learn a lot about the baby while it's still inside of mom. Um, and then certainly there are instances where we, we think we can learn a lot about baby while baby is inside of mom, but the reality is baby is going to tell us how he or she does after, um, after delivery. So newborn assessment and targeted testing during the neonatal period are really included in this spectrum of perinatal diagnostic opportunities. So what are common life-limiting diagnoses that are referred to perinatal palliative care? This will trigger some of you to think back to, to medical school and, and those lists um, of things that you learned about in pathology courses. So um, classically, severe brain abnormalities like anencephaly or very large encephaloceles are considered to be common life-limiting fetal diagnoses. The trisomies 13 and 18 or other significantly abnormal tri um, aneuploidy syndromes. Um, bilateral renal agenesis, which is um, often referred to as a Potter sequence, where babies don't develop um, functional kidney systems, um, and then further don't um, develop uh, pulmonary, um, adequate pulmonary um, uh, tissue development because of the abnormalities um, in amniotic fluid. Um, skeletal dysplasias with resultant pulmonary hypoplasia, and then severe complex congenital heart disease or severe complex CNS abnormalities um, are all kind of those broad categories that fall into, um, or that, that we think of classically as common life-limiting fetal diagnoses. Um, as you look at this type of list, you can see that some of these are things that are going to result in early death. We recognize that babies with anencephaly typically live on the spectrum of minutes to hours to days rather than um, some of those infants with complex congenital heart disease or even some of the babies with trisomy 13 and 18 that can live for months or even in some rare cases years. So what is perinatal palliative care? Um, palliative care during the perinatal period utilizes principles of pediatric palliative care. Um, we really work to help providers as well as families understand that, um, that perinatal palliative care is really an active total care of children with life-limiting diagnoses. Um, it provides support to the family during the child's illness and beyond. Uh, it begins with the first identification, and ideally um, we are, we're pulled in early in that identification 
identification process and continues regardless of the trajectory of illness or treatment. There's sometimes that misconception that perinatal palliative care is only appropriate if families are choosing comfort care or comfort-focused medical care in the delivery room. Um, we really want providers to recognize that even for families that are choosing to have more evaluation and admission to the NICU and even possibly surgical interventions, um, that families, uh, families should have that opportunity to be supported by palliative care providers, recognizing that the terminology of life-limiting condition really is nonspecific and indicates that a baby is going to have a complex course and, and their life will be shortened um, regardless of, of when that timing occurs. Um, additionally, it's intended to improve the quality of life, and it's multidisciplinary in nature, and then we really like to stress that it should be accessible to families and care providers in a variety of settings. So you should not need to be at the academic medical center. You should be able to deliver in your community hospital, receive the care you want in the way that you want it, in, um, and still benefit from perinatal palliative care. How is it different than traditional pediatric palliative care? Or how is it um, how is it a little more complicated? So certainly, perinatal palliative care um, has two patients involved. Right, we are balancing the well-being of the um, and the needs of the mother with those of the fetus or the developing child. Um, it is also characterized by a really unique duality of family experience. Uh, many of these families are preparing for birth and the welcoming of a life and the welcoming of a child, and at the same time are making decisions about saying goodbye and preparing for, um, preparing for what a death will mean within their family and within their parenting experience. The goals of perinatal palliative care are probably very similar to things that, that you think about classically um, for palliative care across the board, but whenever I'm teaching about perinatal palliative care, um, I like to touch on these six points. So we really want families to feel empowered. Um, they are often very helpless in the situation that they're in, recognizing that something is, is happening wrong within mom's body is often very traumatizing. And we, um, we want families to recognize or feel empowered and recognize that there are um, options for them. So they can choose how they want their child's care to look. They can choose um, how the time that they have with their child should look. Um, they can choose how the ongoing honoring and celebrating of their child's life while she or he remains inside of mom looks. Um, we obviously touch significantly on minimizing suffering, both for the infant or the child um, and for the family. We talk about maximizing the quality of time and the quality of life for the newborn and the family, um, which is a very personal and unique um, experience to each of those given families, but helping them to recognize what that quality of time looks like is an important part of our job. Um, we want to honor and celebrate the life of that child, and then finally prepare for anything and everything. And I often kind of reserve that as a big part of my job. The families shouldn't need to feel like they're making, um, making plans for every possible scenario, but we all recognize that, um, that it is a, an important part of our job as palliative care providers to be ready for, um, ready for the scenarios as they arise so that families can focus on the time with their, with their child and their loved ones. So it takes a village. Um, what does the multidisciplinary care team look like when we're talking about perinatal palliative care? 
mothers and babies have a sig or there are a significant number of providers that are involved in the care of, of this dyad. Um, it can often be overwhelming. Families can have repetitive information or they can have contradictory information provided to them. Um, they may have questions that arise that they aren't sure who to go to or what, um, what is their best resource for asking those questions. Um, they also might find that barriers exist. Some primary obstetricians are overwhelmed by complex diagnoses. Um, sometimes moms feel struggle, moms and dads struggle to feel um, bonded to maternal fetal medicine providers if termination has been offered and those families choose not to pursue that or feel um, feel offended or, or morally distressed by that, um, that conversation. Um, finally, sometimes there are people in, in this, in this um, sphere who just truly don't have the experience with neonates to be offering, um, offering advice or answering questions about specific prognosis for the given child. So perinatal palliative care can provide a home base from which families can explore their unique needs. Um, I, uh, in a uh, trajectory or spectrum that many of these families go through is, is um, identified here on this slide. So certainly families experience the identification of a life-limiting diagnosis before they're connected with palliative care. However, if perinatal palliative care is, um, is involved um, early in that process, shortly after identification of that life-limiting diagnosis, we can provide a longitudinal support system and be active in care coordination from early in the pregnancy. Um, support the family through the planning and preparation for the arrival of their child in a multidisciplinary fashion and then continue to support them in a family-centered way um, through the baby's birth, death, and bereavement. Um, Sometimes we will get the question of um, from, from medical providers, well, this mom is actually at a high risk of having an intrauterine fetal demise or intrauterine death or stillborn um, child. What is the need to do all of, this, um, all of this neonatal planning if we are expecting the baby is not going to make it to delivery? Um, I think all of you in this room can probably recognize that there is significant benefit to allowing parents to parent during that, um, during that pregnancy, empowering them to be making decisions, to be Honoring the life of their child and and to feel like they are um, uh, like they are very active in the experience that they are going through, rather than feeling like they are just being told information and things are happening to them while they await the death of their child. Right. So covering all your bases, um, I'm just going to kind of briefly go through each of the eight MCP palliative care domains um, and talk about some of the. Uh, some of the key features of perinatal palliative care. I certainly don't, um, don't intend to be exhaustive today, but I want all of you to kind of have a chance to think through the domains which I would presume you're all familiar with um, in, in a way that uh, fits with perinatal. All right, so structure and process of care. Um, perinatal palliative care teams are ideally interdisciplinary. They're made up of physicians, social workers, many times nurse coordinators, chaplains. Um, we utilize, or we are starting to utilize child life specialists in our program as well. There are genetic counselors. There are, um, there are a range of uh, maternal providers that can be involved in perinatal palliative care programs. It just depends on how a given program is developed. Our program at Children's is made up of two physicians, a nurse coordinator, a chaplain, and a uh, palliative care social worker, as well as, like I mentioned, the now inclusion of child life. Um, there is, um, up front, we have significant goals for assessment of the unique family needs, um, early steps of care planning during those first consultations. 
um, and ideally introduction to to where that or introduction of that for that family of palliative care. So really meeting the family with where they're at and recognizing what palliative care means and the early creation of, of goals, planting seeds in their mind about how do I want to start planning for the arrival of my child. Um, we offer, or palliative care should offer longitudinal support throughout the pregnancy, throughout the delivery, throughout the newborn care period and the bereavement period after death. Um, it, functions in, um, it functions in collaboration with maternal care teams, with the delivery hospital pediatric teams, whether it be neonatology, hospitalists, um, family medicine, whatever it may be, and then um, home-based hospice teams who will provide care for those infants that are able to leave the hospital. So what physical aspects of care do we, um, do we focus on? Families often look to the pediatric palliative care team to um, help them ensure that their child does not suffer. Um, they often have uh, simultaneous goals of time together as a family, um, being comfortable and really optimized, so knowing that they want as much time as they can have in a very comfortable way. For those families that are asking for further evaluation, um, certainly, linking in the, the children's hospital teams, linking in the cardiology, surgical, genetics teams that may, um, uh, that may be involved in that child's initial newborn assessment is another important aspect of, a physical aspect of care. Um, we spend a significant amount of time um, working with families who are choosing comfort-focused medical care plans, so promoting bonding and comfort, talking about routine newborn care, the role of, of parenting in, in the hospital, um, the role of providing warmth and soothing, comforting experiences for that infant as non-pharmacologic symptom management, um, and then discussing things like comfort-focused feeding or limited medical interventions. We often... Um, touch early on on the reality that we can and do use pharmacologic management for symptom management, um, but at the same time, that is something that we plan for as we move forward in the pregnancy and often which is one of those things that we kind of plan for on the back end rather than families feeling as if they need to be making decisions about medications that will be used before the child even arrives. Psychological aspects of care. Um, as I mentioned, we utilize palliative, or palliative care social workers in perinatal palliative care programs like ours um, who play a big role in initial assessment of families, um, family psychological state, coping state. Um, we work together to explore anticipatory grief, um, to connect families to mental health resources. We utilize child life specialists for sibling support and then also to um, help families to start to globally think about how do I want to make memories and honor this child's life? How can I begin to pull my, my other children into this process of, of honoring this little person that's going to be with us for a short period of time? The social aspects of care. Um, you've heard me say, use the terminology honor and celebrate a child's life from the outset. Um, we like families to start to think about the um, planning for delivery so that they feel that they um, have a strong hand in what that time around delivery is going to look like. Again, I want them to feel empowered that they are making decisions and shaping the experience rather than having things happen to them. Um, we like to support the family in ex exploration of creating a legacy. Um, for some families, this means um, 
becoming more active in awareness groups like anencephaly awareness groups um, or trisomy um, awareness groups. For other families it means um, participating in organ donation programs or um, finding ways for their child to contribute to education and medical um, research after, um, after the child's death. Um, we also work with families to start to explore that routine or return to routine after um, delivery and death of a child. Um, going, uh, experiencing pregnancy when you know that your child's life is going to be shorter and look very different than other pregnant moms certainly can be um, traumatic, can be difficult, can be stressful for parents. Um, for additionally, thinking about going back to work, thinking about going home without that newborn in your arms, um, are things that often. Uh, often require both psychological and social support. Spiritual aspects of care. We help families to recognize the unique role of their own spirituality and faith in the family's journey. There's often a big role that um, for families that do have strong spirituality or faith, there's often a big role that those, um, that, that those values play in how they make decisions and how they shape their view of, of their child's life um, within the womb and after delivery. We um, work to assist families in preparing for religious or spiritual ceremonies or rituals, whether they be naming ceremonies, baptisms, blessings, dedications. Um, and then we support the family in exploring in their goals and their plans for care of the body after death. I, um, I always ask families if they've chosen to name their child so that I can use that name when I'm speaking about the baby. Certainly I ask permission if it's okay to use the name. But there are, there are many families um, who choose to, to hold on to that opportunity to name the child and use his or her name af until after delivery. Um, but for those people that already have identified a name as we talk about their baby, as we honor and celebrate baby's life, um, as he or she continues to grow inside of mom, utilizing name is an important part of, of our culture and our way of identifying somebody as a, as a human and, um, and as a, a growing life and a growing person. Um, I often inquire about how families make their decisions and how, how they communicate about those decisions as a couple and as a family. Um, certainly sometimes we will have parents who are very much um, uh, very much utilize their extended family for support. Other times we will have families that are very private in making decisions about their pregnancy and communicating information to extended family. So exploring how, um, how a, an, a child fits into an immediate family and an extended family helps us as providers to think about um, how we are supporting, um, supporting the, uh, the arrival of this child with a life-limiting diagnosis. All right, and then obviously the classic thoughts about um, perinatal palliative care uh, focus on that end-of-life care and that comfort-focused care for newborns when families are choosing that. Um, when welcomed by families, I think an important part of our role is to help them to understand what they are going to see as they parent their child during those minutes, hours, days of that short life. Um, obviously, many parents have weighing on their mind and their heart, what is it going to look like when my child dies, and is he going to suffer? Are my other children going to be scared? So when welcomed by families, um, providing that support and understanding the stages of death, understanding how we manage symptoms at the end of life is an important part of our job. Um, we also partner closely with delivery units, certainly if a perinatal palliative care program exists within a delivery hospital or if the delivery unit exists within a children's hospital, that looks a little different than it does um, in a community like ours where we have several 
delivery hospitals around town and a perinatal palliative program consulting um, for all of those families but within a children's hospital. So we partner significantly with the pediatric units or the the neonatology units around town to provide that hands-on care for babies um, after their their birth and that um, hands-on supportive care for families in managing their symptoms. Um, We also work to establish bereavement support for the families before the baby is born so that we have that opportunity to continue that after birth. And then a perinatal palliative care program can also play a role in assisting families in that ongoing understanding of their child. Um, So things like cord blood samples, autopsy results, skin biopsy results, whatever it might be that is an additional portion of that diagnostic um, workup or that understanding the medical side of my child, we can play a role in that. Um, There's obviously a lot of providers involved in mom's care and, and people who have access to those tests, but depending on where a family is and utilizing us as a support, we can play a role in that as well. And finally, ethical and legal aspects of care. Um, I think an important part of, of our job as palliative care providers is to support the, um, the non-palliative care providers in understanding um, what they're doing as they're providing hands-on care. So we spend a lot of time supporting the delivery hospital, newborn teams, and labor and delivery units in um, in providing end-of-life care um, to the newborn infant. So helping those hospitals to um, understand and utilize their own policies and procedures surrounding death of a newborn, which is typically a very rare event. Um, Ensuring that there is detailed communication of birth plans and family goals um, and requests. And then providing education to staff surrounding pharmacologic management, um, especially in an era where people are um, are nervous about the use of opiates, um, ensuring that that nurses and uh, neonatal providers feel comfortable um, utilizing fentanyl at the end of life, utilizing opiates as necessary for dyspnea and um, and uh, and agonal respirations in in newborns is a very important part of our job to ensure. Um, ensure comfortable life and comfortable death for babies with life-limiting conditions. All right, so the last thing I wanted to touch on is, um, is something that I'm interested in academically, but um, something that certainly you as, as um, palliative care providers um, may, uh, may play a role in at some point in, in your career. So using a birth plan as an advanced care planning tool um, is something that I like to, um, like to talk about and like to think about as we work toward preparing for the arrival of a child with a life-limiting diagnosis. Um, So perinatal advanced care planning gives us the opportunity to provide families um, with an avenue to share their their pregnancy journey and their unique requests for care with their multidisciplinary team. Um, Typically, we sit down in a delivery um, planning conference and talk about maternal management factors, um, newborn care factors, and then family-centered care factors. Um, And these get synthesized then into, um, into a birth plan. So um, what does the maternal care discussion look like? I often defer this conversation to the obstetric providers or the maternal fetal medicine providers, but my suggestions of things that we should be talking about um, as they pertain to mom's health around labor and delivery include the mode and timing of delivery. Um, So how has that maternal provider and the mom um, worked together to create a plan for baby's arrival? Some moms will ask for C-sections. Some OB providers will say no if this 
baby isn't going to live very long after delivery, we recommend that you um, that you not go through a surgical delivery. On the other hand, um, providers are starting to recognize that that allowing moms to make that decision and moms having the opportunity to welcome a living child opposed to a child that may not tolerate labor and die during the labor and delivery process is an important part of autonomy and in mom's health care and, and the parenting decisions around um, a delivery of a child with a life-limiting diagnosis. Um, I encourage providers to talk about risk factors for preterm delivery, risk factors for maternal complications, so that mom has a chance to, mom and dad have a chance to explore what might change our plan. Um, we typically talk about fetal monitoring during labor. Um, some families will choose not to have continuous fetal monitoring, knowing that if they're hearing the fetal heart rate decline or a baby not tolerate labor, um, that it is going to be difficult for them to auditorily hear their child dying. Other families who are choosing for an emergent intervention in the setting of baby having intolerance of labor um, will, rec will, will choose fetal monitoring and move forward with that plan for a, an emergency C-section so that they can have their child alive or that their child can have the opportunity to have some medical evaluation after delivery. Um, and then we also touch on need for confirmatory testing. Does this baby need to have, cell, um, have a cord blood sample sent for um, karyotype or microarray or for the genetic testing? Um, is the family looking to, um, to have a coordinated um, diagnostic process after delivery that would necessitate other providers being in the room or pathology being aware of a skin biopsy sample, um, et cetera, being sent. All right, so what do we talk about when it comes to newborn care? Obviously, I'm a neonatologist by training, so I, this is my bias. This is my area where I'm very comfortable talking with families about what is this time going to look like. Um, and I feel very strongly about families having an opportunity to have a voice in what that time looks like, um, what medical interventions, even non-invasive or comfort-focused um, interventions are offered, and then, um, and then how do we continue to support parents and parenting during this short period of time they have with their child. Um, so some families will choose not to have pediatric teams in the room if they want comfort-focused care and baby to just be placed skin-to-skin -skin against mom. They may choose not to even have neonatology there. Other families will say, I want neonatology there or pediatrics there so that they can help me to understand what's going on with my child and what we see. Um, typically, neonatal nurse practitioners and neonatologists are very happy to be in that setting at any hour of the day or night. We talk about the desire for or the limitations of delivery room medical care. So this is kind of that setting where we talk about resuscitation status. Um, I often will plant seeds in earlier conversations with families about limited medical interventions so that they do have those opportunities to choose. Do I want my baby to have some non-invasive respiratory support so that she is able to kind of transition out of the womb um, to spend more time being comfortable with me? Or do I want to just hold baby in my arms and not have medical interventions offered to her? Certainly for those families that are choosing a more medically focused care plan, so meaning that they would like their child to be transferred to a children's hospital and have some further evaluation before they're making decisions about limiting care, this is also that time period where we talk about how far do they want us to go um, with resuscitation in the event that baby is not responding well to it.
All right, we talk about comfort measures for all babies and routine newborn care. Um, we talk about feeding goals and plans, whether they be nutritive-focused or comfort-focused feeding. Um, and then we talk about targeted plans for symptom management. So if I am expecting a baby to... Um, to have significant respiratory distress because we see a constellation that includes pulmonary hypoplasia, or if I am expecting a baby to show um, cardiopulmonary decompensation when that ductus arteriosus closes because of their congenital heart disease, then we're talking about what is specifically what I expect for this baby and how will we administer it. Um, if it is a more nonspecific um, baby with anencephaly who's probably going to have some apnea and irregular respiratory status, we talk about what range of options might be, um, might be appropriate for this baby so that the pediatric team, the labor and delivery nursing team, and the family are all on the same page with what our recommendations are, but also what is available within their hospital. All right, and the final category um, of things that I like to make sure we are including in perinatal advanced care planning is that family-centered component. So whatever that family looks like and whatever, that fam whatever those, those parents want that time to be like, um, we want to make sure that, that, that we are bending over backwards to help them experience um, parenting, to experience the, um, the, the value system and... Um, and social, emotional, spiritual system that they need to honor their child's life. Um, if able, those families that would like to be able to transition to home-based palliative care or home-based hospice, um, this is also that time where we are pulling the hospice team into our, um, into our multidisciplinary planning meetings and allowing them to have a chance to meet the family and um, briefly touch on their resources. Okay. So I'm just going to go through the summary slides and then I'll take questions if you guys have them. Um, so perinatal palliative care teams play an important role in the care of families facing life-limiting perinatal diagnoses. Um, care is multidisciplinary and collaborative with delivery hospital teams. Comprehensive palliative care is, um, is and or should be and is consistent with national standards for palliative care. And creating a perinatal um, advanced care plan with families ensures autonomy and communication surrounding birth of a child with a life-limiting perinatal diagnosis. Okay. Thank you. What questions do you guys have? I'm going to pass the mic again. None. <laughs> Is this an area that, um, that seems daunting to you if you, as adult providers, if you're asked to step into a delivery setting, um, would, that, would that be something that you would feel comfortable doing at this point in time? Is this something that you have questions about? Um, I actually just have a question. How often, once people are in the delivery room mm -hmm. and going through this process, do their thoughts change? Because obviously this is a... Mm -hmm. they go through different experiences, I can imagine a situation where families would change their mind or have second thoughts, even mm -hmm. if it's been all talked about beforehand. Um, I think early opportunities to explore, um, explore the principles of palliative care helps to minimize those changes or that, um, 
you know, lack of confidence in decision making. And I can only imagine that that all parents question, all, all, all parents who are going through um, a pregnancy of a life that is complicated by a life-limiting diagnosis and, um, and a delivery and subsequent death of a child with one of those diagnoses um, have some degree of questions as their child is um, in their arms and as their child is, um, is dying. I, I have to say, I think that the team that is in the delivery room realistically guides them significantly. I think there's a lot of paternalism that happens um, in those sorts of settings. That would be my, my experiential answer, not, not something that I necessarily know from the literature. Um, I do think that that is one of the very important reasons that we, that we do early consultation and, and longitudinal support for families so that they do feel that they are empowered to have, um, have that care plan and not not be unsure about how things are going to go. Um, there's also kind of that reality that there may be a point of, of no return if you've got a baby that, um, that you have chosen not to do respiratory support on um, or not start prostaglandin infusion in the setting of a complex heart disease. Um, if you allow that, um, that child to kind of progress down the early stages of dying or early physiologic changes, it's probably not something that, that can be reversed. And that family then does need a, a medical team just to kind of hold their hand and guide them through continuing their original plan. Um, we do have some families that ask for for evaluation in the delivery room and want to know, can you try to help my baby breathe? And then they do change their um, their focus as they see that babies are not responding to that therapy. So kind of thinking about those babies with severe skeletal, skeletal dysplasias and restrictive lung disease or a baby that has... Um, pulmonary hypoplasia because of anhydramnios, that family may say, just let's see what we can do. Can we do some gentle respiratory support? Can we see if the heart rate comes up? If the baby responds to, um, to mild to moderate support, then I want to keep going. If the baby is not responding, I don't want you to do CPR. So in that setting, families do sometimes, I don't want to say change their mind, but need that, um, that uh, vague plan in order to, um, to, to feel at peace. Other questions? I was also wondering how often it comes up where there's a discrepancy between what the medical team feels is an appropriate course of action versus what the family's asking for and how you handle that. Um, so I think, I mean, that's, that's a, a very timely question because, you know, I think 20 years ago, if you asked that question, the idea of, um, you know, just to throw out a, a common um, a common diagnosis would be a trisomy 18, where a family says, um, I want you to do everything, and a provider historically may have said, no, this is a lethal anomaly, this is not compatible with life. Um, you haven't heard me use those two terms today because I don't. I, um, I, I feel that uh, my bias is that the baby has life, and, and saying that it is not compatible with life is hurtful and, um, and a little bit incorrect. And the reality is that there are a lot of medical things that we can do to support a child, whether it be um, for the first few years of their life or, or the first few days or weeks of their life or, or even years of their life. Um, and uh, allowing a family to explore that is, is probably very ethically appropriate in the, the time that we're in right now. Um, I think 
I don't have a number for you, but but I think that many people would be surprised at how often we are asked to um, to pursue more aggressive care for a child, even when we as medical providers um, prenatally are recognizing, hey, this is a pretty bad condition, um, because families do um, do sometimes hear your baby is going to die and respond to that with a no, they're not, you're going to do everything, and you can save my baby, and this diagnosis is wrong. Um, so it's, it's a diagnostic journey, and it's a, um, a journey of acceptance. Um, so again, I'm sorry, I don't have a number for you, but the reality is that, yes, um, families do sometimes ask, um, ask for what we as, as physiology-focused medical providers recognize may not be possible. Um, but I I do kind of go back to that idea that if we are able to meet these families early and develop a longitudinal relationship with them as palliative care providers, gives us an opportunity to explore that what if with them. So if they are saying, please do everything, please put that breathing tube in, please um, evaluate that baby for cardiac surgeries, whatever it may be that would that um, that they feel would extend that child's life or give them um, give them the quality of life that they're looking for, um, we as as palliative care providers do have that responsibility to slowly help them explore that what-if side of things too um, and potentially even help them to shape some limitations in what they're asking for. I think the hardest um, cases that I've encountered, and Emma, you probably agree with me in your, your time at Children's too, is those families that haven't had a chance to explore um, the what-if and the families that have chosen not to see palliative care or who have not been referred during the prenatal period. Um, they often have not had that opportunity to, to kind of start to shape um, that potential um, that, uh, that their child may not be able to overcome the, the challenges that they've developed with. Good questions. Other questions? No? All right, well, thank you for your time. I'm always happy to have questions. You can email me or, um, or reach out to me at Children's. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.